yesterday morning we were walking in the snow or as the snowflakes were coming down, walking to a, a family gathering and just out of the depths of my heart, I said, what a glorious thing it is to be alive in Christ. And I, and I truly felt it. And just what a glorious thing it is to have the resurrected Christ living in us by his spirit. What a glorious thing it is to have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. Well, what a passage. Um, may the Lord give us wisdom and, and the guidance and the power of his spirit as we, as we go through this. You know, I believe that deep in the heart of every person is a longing for a sense of family, a sense of community, a sense of communion with other people, a sense of oneness. Young or old, whether you're a student, whether you're an old person like me, you have a longing to belong. I have a longing to belong. There's a longing to be in a, in a band of brothers or band of sisters uh, where, where others have your back and you have their back, where others would lay down their life for you and you would lay down their life for them. And I, I think when people have been in some kind of community or team or something like that in their life, often they look back to that as one of the most special times in their life. But you have a longing to be in a group of people who love you and whom you love and who would defend you to the death and you would defend them to the death. You would share anything you have to meet any pressing need in their life and you know that they would do the same for you. Well, this is not to be a, to be a mere fantasy or just something that we would long to have. It is a reality produced in and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it is very significant that when the Spirit originally fell upon that small group of people in the upper room, it says that they were together in one mind, in one accord. And, there, and there's an important lesson from that. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't manifest himself among a divided group of people. Uh, nothing quenches his work and presence and fullness like friction and, and conflict and complaining against each other. But also, when the Spirit is poured out, our love for one another and our sense of oneness with, with one another reaches a new level. They were, they were one in mind, but when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, the believers in Christ came into a closeness that had never been seen before. The baptism of the Holy Spirit broke down walls between people like never before. And immediately after the outpouring of the Spirit, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes or from house to house. They ate their meals together with glad and sincere hearts. And 
in Acts 4.32, in our passage, it says, All the believers were one in heart and soul. The Holy Spirit had made them a community of new people. They saw each other in a, in a totally new way than they did before. They were with each other and for each other and enjoying each other with, without competition and rivalry and envy and jealousy. There was a spirit of belonging to each other, the spirit of attachment, of being connected to one another. And they were, they were brought so close to one another, it was like they were one heart and one soul. Some translations say one, one heart and one mind, but either way you get this sense of just deep inner connectedness from my inner person to your inner person, from your inner person to this other person's inner person. One heart and one soul. And that's the way it is. When the Holy Spirit touches your heart, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, when the Holy Spirit inundates your heart, we become uh, deeply connected to one another. And in, instead of being isolated people with, with merely our own concerns, our own interests, our own dreams, the Spirit connects us in this community uh, with one another. And it, it is, I believe, ultimately being filled with the Spirit that takes this sense of communion and community with other believers to the highest of heights. It's an, it's an inner compulsion to be with God's people, to participate with God's people, to share what you have with God's people, to open your heart to God's people. I know someone, I heard of someone who said that when they were first filled with the Holy Spirit, that for, for about three weeks, they were just overwhelmed with love for everybody. <laughs> they put it this, they felt like they, liquid love had been poured out into their heart and they just had just incredible, overwhelming sense of love for everybody. And not that it should stop after three weeks, but I mean, that, that is a sign and evidence of the presence of the Spirit, this incredible, overwhelming sense of love for one another. You know, John said, the child of God loves others who are born of God. In a little, little booklet by uh, David Alley that is titled Achieving Apostolic Community, he said, without the people of God being of one heart and one mind, we are no different than any other association of people. It is our brotherly love which differentiates us from all other things. And that's, what, that's our mark. That's what marks us as a people. That's what marks us as, as, as a church. Well, as we said, this oneness of heart and soul so deeply affected the early, ch early church that nobody called any of his possessions his own. Instead, they shared everything they owned. What a, re a remarkable statement. David Guzik said... Because God had so deeply touched their lives by His Spirit, they found it easy to share all things in common. Now, I do not think the point of Luke sharing this story was for Christians to all start a commune. And almost every time that's been tried throughout church history, it's, it's ended up in calamity. But I do believe... His point in sharing this story was to show 
how deep and how real this sense of family is among believers and to show the degree to which it should affect our lives, even to the point at times and situations as needs would arise to even selling, as it says in Acts 2, our goods or possessions, goods or possessions. It doesn't really even identify them in Acts 2. Just It might be... Uh, a jewel, selling a jewelry or it might be selling a, something that you have, uh, a car or whatever. Uh, in Acts 4, it talks about specifically about land and houses. It shows just, just how radical this generosity is, how, how deep and abiding this oneness is with one another, that we would lay down and give up, let go of anything that we have in order to meet pressing needs among the community, the family, the church of God. It should affect us to the point of, of releasing our things for the, for the blessing and benefit of others, um, not just to family members, but to members of our spiritual family. And our understanding and our commitment of one heart and one soul relationships should begin to open our lives more and more so that, we, so that we open our hearts, that we open our homes, and at times uh, open our uh, possessions, bank accounts, checkbooks to each other. You know, one of the very first words that any child learns, I think, is probably the word mine. You know, probably, they probably learn to say mommy or daddy first, but... Boy, probably at least among the first five words that a, that a child learns to speak is mine. And it's interesting, it's probably the first word that they say with real feeling. You know, it's not just mine, it's mine. <laughs> and, you know, they say it with tenacity, with, with, with anger, with, with, with emotion. And that attitude gets... Uh, subdued somewhat, I would say, by good parenting. But until the Spirit of God invades our lives and changes our heart, a, a lot of that same intense self, selfish possessiveness just remains in our heart. And it takes the Spirit of God to drive it out and to make us want to share our hearts, our minds, our souls, our homes, our things with one another. It's a work of God. Now, there is a sense in which ownership of things is healthy, and it is actually even a biblical concept. And, and actually, we'll look at this a little bit later. Peter, or Peter even makes that clear to Ananias in this passage. passage. There's, there's, there's a way in which it is healthy, and it is actually a biblical concept, but because it is infected with sin, it often becomes a means of of shutting others out and isolating ourselves by the boundaries of our possessions. But the outpouring of the Spirit, the, this mighty work of God and pouring out this Holy Spirit brought such a sense of family and communion and community that the sharing of possessions in the early church became easy, it became normal, it became what was happening. People were willing to sell a piece of land or a, a house 
so that they could meet the needs of other saints. The language here indicates, and I think that NIV actually communicates this, it says from time to time. Uh, not sure every translation puts it that way, but, but the language, the original language here communicates the idea that they probably did not all sell all they owned all at once, but over time, as needs arose, various people would be moved and they would gladly sell their things in order to meet those needs. Verse 33 uh, spells this out. It says, with great power, chapter 4, 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was on them all since none of them needed anything because everyone who had land or houses would sell them and bring the money received for the things sold and lay it at the apostles' feet. Then it was distributed to anyone who needed it. So here's what's going on. The apostles were out there in some, some format preaching the good news about Jesus Christ, proclaiming that Jesus Christ indeed, who had been crucified, was now living, raised from the dead. And while they were doing that, the people were sharing in this incredible oneness uh, this incredible love with one another, and it says all of them experienced great grace or uh, mega grace. They were just experiencing this massive grace of God. Again, I'm going to quote David Guzik. He said, Grace is God's favor, it is his smile from heaven, and it was upon them all. In other words, God was pleased with this oneness and this sharing, this readiness to meet needs in people's lives. The Amplified says, God's remarkable loving kindness and favor and goodwill richly rested on them all. I mean, and and it's, it's hard to say, was it because his grace was so abundantly upon them that they were, that they were uh, sharing so freely with one another or because they were sharing so freely with one another was God's grace and his smile upon them. He kind of points to the latter. But it was just, the whole thing was inundated by grace. It was a work of God. It was an activity of God that spurred on this incredible sense of love and oneness. And God was pleased. God was smiling. His grace was abundantly upon all of this that was happening. And I just explained perhaps what was going on in this situation, uh, it seems that the, these great and pressing financial needs may have arisen from the great numbers of people from far off places who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They had heard Peter preach the gospel, and back in Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, then they had responded to the message about Christ and there, there were these multitudes now in Jerusalem without permanent housing and jobs. In a sense, it was a kind of first century refugee crisis. So that may have been a situation where there was just all of a sudden this, this huge uh, pressing need. But while that would have been a unique situation, the, the principle of placing people's needs above above clinging to our things, that principle never changes. 
And verse 36 gives us a specific example of one man who sold some property. Luke's kind of been talking in generalities how this was going on. And now he brings it down to point out one person who specifically did this. He said, there was a man whose name was Joseph, but he was called Barnabas, or son of encouragement by the apostles, who sold a field that belonged to him. Well, why is Barnabas mentioned? Uh, well, I think, I think first, perhaps just because he was a, a notable example of this kind of generosity that Luke has been talking about. So he just singles Barnabas out and say, here was, here was, a, man, here was a man who's known and respected, and, and he was a part of this radical generosity and giving. And it's interesting that he, that he points out that the apostles call him the son of encouragement. So Barnabas was, uh, was kind of his nickname. And he was just given that because he was just, just such an encouraging guy. You know, what a, what a great thing about Barnabas that just known for encouraging other people. I mean, what, a, what a blessing those kind of people are, aren't they? And so Barnabas was that kind of guy. He, and he was kind of, he had a, this, he had two fantastic qualities. He was known here for his generosity and also for being an, an encourager. What, what great things to be known for. And, of course, I believe he's probably also mentioned just because later on he became a partner with uh, Paul in his missionary journeys. But the outward act, the outward act, you know, we always get caught up with the outward acts, don't we? We, out, we get caught up with what we can see and what is visible. But the outward act of selling a house or piece of land or some other goods was not the main thing that mattered. The main thing that mattered was this love and this oneness of heart and soul, this sense of family, this sense of community with one another, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, out of which this radical generosity sprang. But one man and, and, and his wife focused on the outward act of selling property while their, while their hearts, their own hearts, were not in tune with the Holy Spirit at all. And God was not pleased with that. So we come here to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And there is a reason that Luke puts this story right here, right after he shares about this incredible generosity and oneness of heart and soul, he, he moves right on to somebody that came into this and did something that was going to mess it up. So there's a reason that Luke puts the story right here. At a time when the Holy Spirit had created such oneness of heart that people were selling their possessions, Ananias and Sapphira, they came up with a plan to look like they were sharing in this, rat, this sacrificial generosity when they were not. They saw the respect that other people received. They saw perhaps the respect that a man like Barnabas received, how people looked up to him. They, they saw that he was respected for his giving, and they wanted people to, be, to look up to them like that too. They wanted to appear that they were a part of this great move of the Spirit 
with, without it costing them personally. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas had done. They also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So, here's what happened. Ananias came up with a plan. He talked it over with his wife. She bought into it. She agreed to it. And they put it into action. And this was their plan, as I understand it. We will sell a piece of property, maybe some land, maybe a rental property, who knows. We will act as if we are giving the entire amount of the proceeds to the apostles, like other, like other people had done. But we will keep a part, and I think, I think they schemed to keep a major part of the proceeds for themselves. So, we will do this, they discussed, we'll do this by telling the apostles that we sold the land for less than we actually sell it for. I mean, pretty simple scheme, right? We'll just tell them that we sold it for less than what we actually sell it for. In other words, we have this lot, let's say it's worth $60,000. And we're, we're either going to outright lie to the apostles and tell them we sold it for thirty, or we're going to let them presume that we sold it for $30,000. We give them the $30,000. We keep the other $30,000. So then we will look like these super spiritual people. We will look like we are filled with love for other, other people. The apostles will think we are wonderful. Uh, we will look like we are part of this great move of, of the Spirit. But it won't really cost us that much. But Peter knew immediately that he was being lied to by Ananias. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? So how, how was this great deception uncovered? Well, Peter just knew. He just knew he was being lied to. I think... This very likely was communicated to him uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, perhaps through what could be called a word of knowledge or a message of knowledge that is a, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. He just knew immediately. He knew, this guy's lying to me. It was just made aware to him by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I have not had that happen to me very often, but recently on, on our flight back to Minneapolis, uh, a man was sitting beside me, and uh, he actually initiated the conversation. I, was, I had my iPad up on my table tray, and I was reading a, a Christian book, a book on the, this was called the uh, Count Zinzendorf and the Spirit of the Moravians. Anyway, and... Uh, 
this man, he, he mentioned, he actually took the initiative and he said, he noticed that I was reading, you were reading a book about the Moravians. And he said, I'm, I'm aware of that, that movement and so forth. And so we started to talk a little bit. Uh, he said he'd been a Presbyterian minister but was now teaching at a Protestant seminary in Minneapolis. And al- almost immediately I had this sensation that I... Or, it, it, I don't know if it's a sensation, but almost Im- immediately I sensed that I knew about a sin in this man's life. And I also sensed that even though he's talking like a Christian, I also sensed that he had apostatized or, or abandoned the faith. I almost had just a sense that there's some huge sin in this guy's life and he has, he's abandoned his, his biblical, true Christian faith. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more about this story, but I, I felt like as, as we continued to talk more and more, those things were were just confirmed in our in our conversation, and I did in in, in my own very feeble way uh, do what I felt like I could could do to proclaim um, the veracity and truth of the gospel for his life. Anyway, Peter goes on from here uh, to make a very interesting statement to Ananias, and he tells him that. Your land, he says, guys, your land was your own, and you didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to go through this. He said, as, as long as your land remained un, unsold, wasn't it your own? In other words, it was in your control to do with as you freely chose. And then he said, and after it was sold, even after it was sold, wasn't the money under your control, or, or some versions say, at your disposal? Okay, the land, the land was yours to do with what you, what you chose to do. You didn't have to sell it. And even after you sold it and had the money for it, you're still free to do what you chose to do with the money. It was under your, under your control, at your disposal. In other words, Ananias and Sapphira were, were free to do what they chose to do with their land and their money. They, they, they didn't have to get entwined in this ugly, horrible... Uh, scheme that they got involved with. You know, God smiles at our generosity and he loves a cheerful giver, but he also wants our giving to be a free response under grace. Uh, God said through Paul, let everyone give as he is purposed in his heart and not under compulsion. Uh, you know, Ananias and Sapphira did not have to sell their property because other people were doing that. It was a good thing. But they didn't have to do it just because other people were doing that. If it wasn't in their heart to give all the proceeds, they should have felt free to just give what they chose to give and to be honest about it and forthright. The problem was not that they didn't give all their proceeds. It was the lie. It was the deception. It was the pretense. Verse 4 continues... How could you have thought of doing such a thing? You did not lie only to men, but also to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized everyone who heard about it. The young men got up, wrapped him up, carried him outside, 
and buried him. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more on that later after we complete the story. Okay, so just just hold on. I'm not going to forget about that. All right, well, of course, Peter knows that the sale price Ananias gave him is is false, right? He knows he's been given a fake number. So when Sapphira shows up, he specifically questions her, did you sell the land for this amount? What does she say? Yes. Peter knows that is a lie and that she has conspired with her husband. Now, To me, it seems somewhat shocking that she had the nerve to go ahead with this plan and just looking right in Peter's face to tell him this bold-faced lie. But she did. Uh, She carried out the scheme to the end. And at that moment, uh, she could have told Peter the truth. When he questioned her, she could have responded with the truth. She She had the opportunity right there to um, obey the Holy Spirit rather than to stick with her husband's plan. But, interestingly enough, they obviously came at separate times. We don't know why. We don't know exactly how far apart, how many hours or uh, how much time separated their, their visit with Peter. But she did not know that Peter had discerned her husband's lie. She did not know that her husband Ananias was already dead. She didn't know that their plan had already blown up. And she thought their plan was still working. And so she stayed with the plan. And she stuck with the lie. In a classic old movie from 1944 called Double Indemnity, uh, there's a man and a woman who who conspire together to, to murder her husband. And, of course, they're, they're caught. It's kind of a tragic ending. But at, at, the, end of the, moment, at, at the end of the movie, there's this, there's this sad and kind of ominous statement that almost uncannily uh, applies to Ananias and Sapphira. But here's what it says in double, at the end of Double Indemnity. It says, They've committed murder. And it's not like taking a trolley ride together where they can get off at different stops. They're stuck with each other. And they've got to ride it all the way to the end of the line. And it's a one-way trip. And the last stop is the cemetery. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit. They stuck with each other all the way to the end of the line. And the last stop was the cemetery, quite literally, for both of them. Verse 9, How could you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Peter asked her. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and these men will carry you outside as well. She instantly fell down at Peter's feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her next to her husband. You know, it's interesting that Peter did not, at least from what we know in the passage, did not pronounce uh, 
a death sentence upon Ananias. Ananias, it, it, it seemed to be just, just a judgment that fell upon him in the face of his lying to, to God and to the Holy Spirit. But having seen him fall dead, Peter, Peter knows the same thing will happen to Sapphira. So, so he lets her know that, that she's going to die too, that, she, that, she, that the men will carry you outside as well, just like they did your husband. Now, many people have big problems with this. And I think, I think probably even people, Bible-believing people um, like us here at Real Life Church, I mean, if, if I had titled the sermon this morning, uh, The Day God Killed People at Church, uh, you know, you probably would have, would have had kind of a, a worried reaction to that. But I think, I think it's important for us to, to learn a couple of things or see why this happened. Uh, number one, their lie was an ugly cancer on the beautiful oneness of heart and soul that the Spirit of God was producing among the believers. And it had to be removed. They were doing something that was so destructive to what God was doing. They were doing something so against so destructive to this oneness of the Holy Spirit that he had created within the church. And their, their death shows how highly God values oneness of heart and soul among believers. I mean, this was a precious thing in the sight of God. And he acted dramatically to, to protect it from people taking advantage of it for their own pride and glory. You know, a lesson that... that, that for, for us my, that might come from this, is that when believers are dwelling together in, in the beauty of love and unity, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to go in and mess that up. Uh, God doesn't like people to do that. Secondly, and I think this is really the lesson that's embedded here most significantly, is that God is communicating that their lie was a great offense to the Holy Spirit. The whole, let's, let's look, think about the situation. The Holy Spirit had just recently been so abundantly poured out upon the followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was among God's people and doing such wonders. And God wanted His church, God wanted His people to know right up front that the Holy Spirit was to be respected feared and held in awe. And the death of Ananias and Sapphira shows the wonder and the awe and the honor in which we are to hold the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit is powerful. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not to be trifled with. You can't lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't trick the Holy Spirit. You can't pull something over on the Holy Spirit. You are dealing with God. One of the interesting things in this passage is that it's one of the passages that, that very clearly shows the Holy Spirit is God. Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And then right after that, he said, you have not lied to men, 
but to God. He died because he lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God. And this raises a a question for us all. How do you treat the Holy Spirit? It is not a small thing. It is not a small thing to ignore the Holy Spirit, to quench the work of the Holy Spirit, or to try to deceive Him. Verse 11, And great fear seized the whole church, and everyone else who heard about it. There is a quality of reverential fear that is badly needed in our lives. Fear, let me say this, let me hear this very carefully, fear is not the main component or the main attitude in our heart toward God or the Holy Spirit. But it is a component. It's a necessary component of a healthy spiritual life. So what do we take away from this? I want to step back and look at the whole thing that we've talked about this morning. What do we take away from this? Number one, the Holy Spirit can change our hearts so that we see each other in a completely new way. He can make us see that we belong to each other. He can, he can help us come to a place where we, where we realize that we simply are a part of each other. He can bring us to the point where we actually are one heart and one soul, one mind with each other. The Holy Spirit can, can enable us to see that we are the body of Christ and therefore members of, of one another. And I, I believe... I believe the Holy Spirit wants to produce an environment. And I think we have it in measure, but I, He wants to increase it for sure. But I'll still put it this way. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to produce an environment right here at Real Life Church where you can walk into church on Sunday morning or walk into any other meeting of this church and you immediately sense that you are with family you immediately sense that you are one heart and one soul with these people. You immediately sense that you are with people who love you and that you love them. You can relax. You are welcome. I mean, you are welcome in the deepest sense of the word. You're among brothers and sisters, people who would lay down their lives for you, people who are not stabbing you in the back, but people who have your back. We want that kind of relationship, that kind of oneness of heart and soul among us. So I appeal to you to open your heart to this work of the Spirit. You know, I can't force anybody into this. I don't even know how to uh, prescribe the exact steps that you need to to enter into this. I just know that it's something the Holy Spirit produces in your heart, can produce in your heart, I know it's something that that pleases God. I know it's something that He wants. I know it's something that He works is working among us. And I know the more that we are letting Him work, the more we will have that kind of family, community, brotherly love among us. So, turn from your tendencies to isolate, to separate, to be a loner. 
you know, stop believing the age-old lies that you're not wanted, that you're not loved, that you're different from everybody else, you never fit in, that kind of thing. Stop believing the lie that you really, that you don't really need to be in this kind of close community. Stop believing the lie that you really don't need this. You do. <laughs> Christ died to bring you into this kind of relationship with other people. And then, secondly, from Ananias and Sapphira, never, never use giving or sacrificial actions as, as a way to create an appearance of spirituality or that you love people. I mean, God, God never asks you to look like you love people. He, he wants you to actually love people. He never, he never asks you to look like you're filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He never wants you to look like you're serving and sacrificing for other people. He wants you to actually do that, flowing out of your heart. And third and, and last, they're just going to come back to this point of honor the Holy Spirit. I really think that's the big message of this passage. There's some people that were kind of trifling with the Holy Spirit here. And God, God dealt with it. Uh, God dealt with it, it severely. Uh, hold the Holy Spirit in the highest regard. Hold him in reverence and awe. And again, not that we live in terror of the Holy Spirit, but we never trifle with Him or lie to Him. I mean, I consider the Holy Spirit my best friend. I, I call upon Him. I trust in Him. I live in Him. He I, helps me daily. I, I so enjoy walking uh, with, with the Holy Spirit. But I have huge amount of respect and reverential awe for him. So follow the guidance of the Spirit, love him, obey him, never underestimate him, never devalue him, never attempt to deceive him or think you can get away with some plan to do evil. He is the Spirit of the Lord. He is God. He's with you. The Holy Spirit is, is, is God sent the Holy Spirit, so He's poured out into our hearts. So we have this we have this intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is not only with us, but He is in us. But that intimacy does not mean that you can dismiss Him as unimportant. He He is the living God at work in you and with you and around you. Respect Him, honor Him, give yourself completely to Him. Let him fill you. Surrender your life to him. Let him fill you up. He is deserving of your life. Let's pray.